And I know that there, because of the Halloween thing that some of you guys have sacrificed away from your family, we dropped our kids off in Buckingham, and we're just hoping they find their way home. Um, But if you're wondering why you're here tonight, like you specifically, it's because you have a voice, and not just that you get to, you can talk, but like you've got a voice, like with with Shannon and I, like we, you know, you're you are people individually that speak into our lives that have been effective communicators with us and influence on us, and you've got a voice at the table of what's going on with conduit, and you've got a voice in our church. Uh, you may not have a business card with a title next to it, uh, but neither did Paul. But you have a voice that when you speak, there are people that you influence around you. And I don't know if you know what that's called, but that's called being a leader. And so I know there's not an org chart that maybe you've seen your name on, and that's in, a little bit intentional. But your voice of influence to others, uh, your voice of uh, wisdom to Shannon and I, and your voice uh, before the Lord. Because I know that uh, everybody here, you guys are prayers. You're people that know how to take something before the Lord in, in prayer. And where conduit is right now, we're, you know, we've crested the three-year mark, and we, it's kind of time to cut out the all shucks routine. Um, it's time to maybe acknowledge that, hey, this, we went into this, I, you know, I went in with both eyes open, realizing that we had about a 99% chance of failing. You know, I've been around long enough to know this was not a very, this was not a sure thing. And I, I went into it honestly, secretly thinking, well, when it fails, that'll be the act of humility. You know, humility and humiliation share the same root word. But here we are three and a half years in, and it's like, you know, this is actually working. And we've been, I have been, I think, defining us a lot by what we are not these past few years. And that's a healthy thing for us to know what we're not because it saves us time. But leading into the future of what conduit is, it's, uh, it's time we define what we are. And I'm not here tonight, this is not the purpose of it, is to uh, write out a whiteboard of, oh, here's what we are and here's the plan and now you guys march with it. Uh, this is time for our voices to join together uh, in prayer, in conversation, and to think about the future. And when I think about the future, you know, the years that I had in the music business, I had a front row seat to a lot of really large uh, multinational ministries. And a few years back, the Billy Graham organization started uh, doing a lot of work in Canada. And they were hiring a lot of my bands because they were trying to find how to do this new thing. And they were going to Canada because they looked to where the United States would be, what they felt would be inside of 10 to 15 years, which is a not postmodern, but post Christian uh, society. I, I believe personally they might not have they might have given it more time than what we actually had. You know, the United States, for the most part, is a post-Christian society right now. And if you look to where Europe is, the Billy Graham organization said that's where Canada will be in 10 years, which is a nation that is way post-Christian. Athe- uh, atheism is uh, is a given. The cathedrals are mostly empty in their tourist attractions and museums. And as a church, I've got, you know, I've got children. You've got children. Some of you have got some in the oven. On the way. But for our future, for the future of our children, I really believe we have got to figure out what it is that the church 
in America can be to survive what is coming. The European, the Canadian, all respect to my fellow Canadians, you guys know it's a post-Christian society. It's a secular society. Francis Chan, uh, I put it uh, on YouTube. I I snipped out a three-minute portion of a talk that he gave uh, last year. And he compared the Russian church and the Chinese church. That when communism came in, the Russian church was almost destroyed because it was all about cathedrals and, you know, centralized priests, and it was easily destroyed because all they had to do was take out the leaders and the rest of them followed. When it happened in China and communism set in, the church thrived. It, It exploded because it was never about cathedrals and centralization there. It was always about decentralization. It resembled much more of what would have happened in, in early on in the book of Acts. I've been praying a lot this year as to what that means for us. What I don't want to do is be like what happened in the early times of the uh, Revolutionary War. If you've read the book that's just come out, the um, David versus Goliath that Malcolm Gladwell wrote, he talks about how in the early days of the Revolutionary War that the Americans were winning because they weren't fighting on the terms that the enemy was giving them. They were guerrilla warfare. And as they became more and more successful, something I'd never known about history before, was they, all, they started losing because George Washington was doing everything he could to Britainize the army, get them into uniforms, get them to line up and to fight like gentlemen, to fight on the enemy's terms, not on the terms that they were winning on. At three and a half years in, we are in danger of Britainizing conduit and fighting on the terms of where the enemy is and doing what the enemy wants, where we can then easily just become another institution that will fossilize into the future. And, you know, your children and my children, it may or may not be relevant to them. And I just, we have, we have such a unique opportunity to do something different here. And you may be wondering why I've invented, uh, invited Benny Prophet tonight. And if you haven't met Benny and Mary Lou yet, I hope you get to before the night's out. I bumped into Benny at Starbucks a couple months ago. And it was at a time, I haven't even told you this yet, Benny, but I've been, you know, Mike Pappas and I were talking about, I really need to get a a mentor, somebody speaking into my life. And I've been reaching out. It's almost like eighth grade dating all over again. You know, you get rejected and I don't like you. And, but what I found was a lot of guys that really, (laughs) I had a guy two months ago sit down and look me in the eye and I, your model isn't going to work. It's, it, it will fail. You know, it's not sustainable into the future. And I didn't believe him. Like, I wasn't like, oh, downtrodden. But it was like, is there somebody out there that actually has thought more about this than we have? Benny, a few years back, 20-some years back, he'll probably tell more about it, started an organization called First Priority. And it's a discipleship ministry. He probably explained better than I would because he started it. Where teenagers on campuses and college campuses disciple each other. It was one of the earlier organizations after, you know, if you, many of you know Jay Seculo won the case where organizations, Christian organizations could meet in school. Schools, uh, Benny and, and Mary Lou's organization was one of the first ones to take off into that. And today there are over 10,000 first priorities in the name of the ministry. First priority clubs in schools across the country. And the reason that I'm excited for Benny to be here and the, the time that he's been giving us these past few weeks, it's been Thursdays with Benny, Tuesdays with Maury, Thursdays with Benny, Oprah joke. Uh, he's been giving us so much time speaking into us, but what, what I love is that this organization is, is ran 
from his bonus room over the garage. The decentralization of what they have accomplished there doesn't require a rock star communicator, centralized leader. It was just like what Jesus said in motion, which were disciples who made disciples who made disciples. And to this day, I mean, long, long after Benny and Mary Lou are enjoying their reward in heaven, their, I believe, will be first priority clubs because it was never about one guy. And when I, when I started talking out loud and Benny didn't say I was crazy, and not only did he not say I was crazy, but it was, you know, this is what we're doing and has done it very, very successfully. And I just thought of all the stuff that I've been learning and hearing from him, the, instead of me trying to regurgitate it, uh, I've invited Benny and Mary Lou to come and spend this evening with us. And he's going to talk a little bit. Again, this is not about making uh, decisions of what the practical side is, so I would encourage you not to go practical tonight, but relax into the theology of this, relax into the dreaming of this, relax into the possibilities of this. And then we're going to pray. And we're going to seek the Lord. And we're going to uh, maybe get back. I, I feel like this is probably the first of a few of gatherings like this. But this is the moment where we get to awaken the possibility inside of our own hearts that God might be up to something uh, special and unique in our midst. So, Benny, would you uh, come and do your thing? I know the microphone's ridiculous. But we'll... All right. We'll see if we get... We might use this board. Can everybody see the board okay? We might... I draw a few things on there tonight. Uh, <clears throat> I worked as a youth pastor for 30 years, and the the first church I worked in, my youth group doubled. I went from six to 12, <laughs> and uh, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Uh, I was the great copycat. Uh, I just looked around, and anything that looked good, I tried to copy it. Uh, I told one guy, I said, "Now, what do you do that works?" And I said, "Well." About half of what I do works, but I don't know which half it is. <clears throat> yeah, and I know some of y'all feel that way. You've been in ministry. We're doing everything we can to try to reach people, and if we could just figure out what worked, and we quit doing the rest of it. And you, you know what the dropout rate is uh, for pastors and churches? How many guys who start pastoring a church end their life pastoring the church? What's the dropout rate? Ninety. Yeah, ninety percent. Uh, ministry's tough. And uh, I think uh, we're all a little bit apart um, of what I call the holy discontent. We, we love the Lord and he's changed our lives and we love the church. Uh, but we've, we've come to that place where we go, is this it? And I remember the first time uh, that I, I quit. <clears throat> In fact, I used to tell my staff, uh, we used to judge how we were doing by how many times we'd quit that week. I say, now, how many times have you quit this week? I, only once. I said, well, you're doing good. But I remember that first time I quit, I drove home from the church, and I got to the stop sign, and I said, God, if this is it, please give me something else to do because I feel like we're playing games. Uh, I, we're, we're, not, we're not reaching people. We're almost, uh, it's almost like, uh, well, our son, Joey, uh, it's, it's like Joey when he came home from church at age five. And he said, uh, he said, Dad, I'm not going to church anymore. <laughs> so he came home to make this declaration. He said, I'm not going to church anymore. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, why aren't you going to church anymore? He said, well, the, the people at church think I'm dumb. And I said, Joey, the people at church love you. They don't think you're dumb. Why would you say that? He said, well, Dad, they tell us the same thing every time we go up there. 
Doesn't take long, does it? He already had it figured out at age five. He went and he says, I know exactly what's going to be said. I know exactly what's going to happen. And so I think that's where we've, you know, we get, we go, we go, we go out of obligation to, uh, we go out of a love for Christ and an obligation to the church. And yet pretty much uh, we feel like it's the same thing every time we go. Uh, I remember the, the lady who came, you know, the, the preacher would preach and everybody would shake the preacher's hand if he came out of church and they'd say, what a great sermon that was and everything else. And I remember the one lady that came by and shook the preacher's hand and said, that was a great message this morning. He said, thank you. And she said, and next week's is even better. Because pretty soon you preach the same sermons over and over and over again. And so she knew what was coming. Yeah, she already knew what it, you know, she already knew. She said, next week's is a lot better than this one. <clears throat> so you'll get that one in a little bit. <laughs> but uh, so I began, you know, like many of you and like many believers, I, I think we, we find out that, uh, you know, there are people that are hanging in there with the church. And there are some churches that are doing a great job. Um, I have, uh, when we started First Priority, we started traveling across America, and I've, I've spoken to pastor networks and youth pastor networks in over a 1,000 U.S. cities since 1995. So we've seen just about everything you can imagine, uh, what's going on in cities and what's going on in the church. But uh, <clears throat> everybody knows the definition of a fool. What's the definition of a fool? A person who keeps doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And so I think uh, we've, uh, we've all been challenged, and, and there's, a, there's a holy discontent, there's a frustration uh, as believers to say, and Lord, you've called us uh, to reach the world, and you've called us to be the salt and light, and you've called us to be all these things, but it feels like we're losing, not winning. It feels like the world, you know, we're out in the world, like you look at America, and you're going, okay, we got more churches, We've got more ministries. We've got all this stuff going, and uh, I think in Birmingham, uh, Birmingham sort of our marquee city. We have uh, there's 300 middle schools and high schools in Birmingham, and we have uh, a, a student-led outreach in every school, all 300 of them. And there's about 800 churches working together as a support system to those 300 schools. And we've just now launched the elementary schools, doing this in elementary schools. We had uh, we uh, launched 25 elementary schools this year. And with, in elementary schools, you have to have parent permission slip for kids to be a part of a club like First Priority or a group like that. And in the uh, first month this year, we had 5,500 parents turn in permission slips in those 25 elementary schools saying, I want my kids to hear this. I want my kids to know about Jesus. You know what they are? They're scared to death. They're going, I don't care what the rules anymore. I'm looking at the culture around me, and the culture is invading my home. It's invaded the church. I know as a youth pastor, you know, I, I felt like my call was to equip students to go and change the world, and I felt like my job was to get the world out of the students. So I wasn't able to fulfill my calling. I spent all my time trying to get the world out of them instead of sending them into the world. So we felt overwhelmed. We felt like we were losing. And yet at the same time, I've, I've worked with some of the greatest Christian leaders and young people, some of the greatest young people that, uh, out, that are out there living their faith and, and uh, being a light, you know, being light and salt in their world. 
but it seems like there is a, there's still less and less. We get farther and farther behind. So um, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I was on that journey, that same frustration. I said, Lord, either show me what to do or give me something else to do. You know what that feels like? Yeah. Say, show me what works, what works. And so what I found that I was doing, one of the things when, when I left the, um, being on staff at a church, I'd been there for 30 years, and the, the, the first church I worked in, my youth group doubled. The last church I worked in, it, I don't know how many times it doubled. We started out with 200, and I think um, when I left there was about 1,200 kids involved in our youth ministry, and uh, I didn't know hardly any of them. I know I went to the mall in Birmingham one night and some kids were standing there and this girl, a kid I recognized, and I walked up and I said, how are you guys doing? Fine. I said, what's your name? I'll never forget her name. She said, my name's Delaney. And I said, well, Delaney, where do you go to church? I see you're hanging out with all these guys that are in my youth group. Where do you go to church? She said, you're my youth pastor. Does he think I felt bad? <clears throat> Not really. You know why? Because what we had done is we had, ran, we had trained leaders and students to reach people who, who reach people who reach people. And it's, you're, aren't, as, as the youth minister, aren't you supposed to know every kid in the church? You shouldn't. You're doing your job. If you're, if you're like most churches where you say, well, I want the youth pastor to know everybody and be involved in everybody's life. That's your job as the youth pastor. Then that's why most churches in America have 20 kids in their youth group. If that's our model for ministry. Uh, the hired gun, the paid professional. So um, we, we went through a big transition where we said truly we're going to be the equippers of the saints. The other thing I discovered on this journey was <clears throat> when I was when I viewed the church and I thought about what the church was, even when I studied the scripture, I made the scripture fit the church I went to. So I'd read it, and our church operated this way, and I said, "Well, that must mean that." So that's we would justify our activity through the scripture, making the scripture fit. And then when I was able to step back and start doing what we did then I, I realized what what we were using in the scripture wasn't necessarily to defend what we were doing, wasn't necessarily what the scripture was telling us. So we were defending our, our methodology. We were defending our institution or our denomination. And all of a sudden you step back and you go, well, maybe that's not what that meant at all. Uh, when we think of the church right now, if, you, if you're outside the church, when people... Uh, if you were to ask people, what's the church, what is the church, what would people outside the church say in, in our culture? It's a building, yeah. Which church, what corner? So they, they, would, they view the church as a building. Now we know as, a, uh, as, as believers that the church is not the building. We know we're the building. We're the church. We're the house of God. And when you start reading that, in fact, I had to correct one of my friends. I was at their church when you get older, you can do that. <clears throat> so I corrected one of my friends who was preaching about they were wanting to build a new building at their church, and they used the, the verse about, you know, building the house of God. And so we need to, we, so this message, we need to build the house of God. And after the message, I went up to him and I said, I a great message this morning, you just misused the scripture. 
and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you, were, you made a reference to building the house of God, and you were talking about a new building you wanted to build, but the correct interpretation of that scripture, what is the house of God, and what are the made of living stones? It said that we're the house of God, not the building. But how many times have I heard the church use those passages of scripture to defend a building program when that was not what the scripture was saying at all? Because that the the building is not the house of God, and so what I I grew up in an institutional, denominational church served it for thirty years, and in that institutional denominational church I met wonderful people that loved Jesus and were doing the best they could, and many good things happened there. <clears throat> but uh, we were losing the battle, so I said maybe maybe we're doing it wrong. And so I was finally got to the place in my own life where I was willing to not only say that, and that's not a popular thing to say. Um, <clears throat> the scripture says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. If you're hearers only, you have what? You've been defrauded. You've been given a counterfeit. And you know what? I came to the realization that the way I did church, I was creating counterfeit Christians. I created them all the time. I said, what you need to do is you need to come to church Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, and you need to listen to what I'm telling you. And if you come to all those times and listen to what I say, then you're a faithful follower of Christ. So if you're a hearer of the word, and so I know churches many times, that's how they measure their success. How many seats are there in the auditorium? How many people come? And how often do they come? And we count those numbers, and we say that is our success. And so in 1982, uh, I was sitting at that stop sign, uh, quitting. And uh, you know what the Lord told me? Now, you know the Lord talks to us. Sometimes he, he talks to us as his people, and sometimes he calls us by name. Have you ever had the Lord call you by name? You know, sometimes we, we say, well, God's telling us to do this and love one another and forgive. And sometimes he just says, hey, Benny. He said, the reason you want to quit is you're doing a lot of things I never told you to do. And that's why you're not succeeding. You're just doing things I never told you to do. You know what? Uh, you know how Jesus operated? He operated very simply. He said, I do the things the Father tells me to do, and I say the things the Father tells me to say. And you know what else he did besides that? Nothing. That's all he did. So what if we? What, what if that's the way we run our lives? Instead of uh, going through, well, I've, I'm obligated to do this, and I'm obligated to be there, and I'm, you know, because there's this system of religion. Now, <clears throat> I don't have time to talk about this one tonight. We'll do that. We've we've talked about it a little bit, and we need to talk about this to make sense of more sense of what we're going to talk about. But uh, the gospel. <clears throat> Uh, I was speaking in Sacramento about, I think it was 2006, and we were, uh, we were right across from Arnold Schwarzenegger's office in the Capitol building. There was a little Hispanic pastor who was, worked for Arnold in his office who loved Jesus, and they were, he was getting all the city leaders, pastors and leaders together to help start a youth outreach in the city, and we were there to train them in what we do and how to do that. And uh, so um, I said, does Arnold know about Jesus? He said, yes, he does because I tell him every day. And he says, I pray with him. And he knows I pray for him. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> you know, God's people are out there everywhere. 
And so this little Hispanic pastor, I got through, and this little Hispanic pastor came up to me, older man, and he said, uh, you know what you just did? Don't you know what you just told us? And I'm thinking, okay, what? <laughs> I think I know what I just told you. But, and I said, obviously, you have something in mind, so I use what Jesus did. Jesus, every time they asked him a question, he would ask them a question. I said, okay, why don't you tell me what I just told you? And he said, well, you just told us how the kingdom of God works. That's how the kingdom of God works. And I said, great. And I walked away, and I was going, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. <laughs> I'm not sure I know how the kingdom of God works. But he said that. And then a, a couple weeks later, I was in Birmingham, and a pastor, after I was speaking, handed me a book. He said, you need to read this book. I've been, I read this book, and I kept thinking of you, and you need to read this book. And the book was Rediscovering the Kingdom of God. And so I'm going, okay, God, are you trying to tell me something? And then a few weeks later, one of my prayer ladies. Now, do you all have any wacky prayer ladies in your fellowship? They see demons and angels and hear voices and stuff. Man, I love those. I call them the wacky prayer ladies. But I've got one of those ladies that helps me. And so she says, she calls. And uh, In fact, Mary Lou and I were in, you know, we grew up Baptist. We don't see angels, you know. <laughs> but uh, we're in this meeting in, in uh Colorado and I, I flew her in because she has this discerning spirit and we were sitting in this meeting a real important meeting about some decisions we were making and so after it was over I said Debbie alright what did you think what what do you think what did you sense in that meeting she said I don't remember anything <laughs> and I said I flew you all the way here from Wisconsin and you don't even remember sitting in the meeting she said no there was an angel standing behind Mary Lou in the meeting and I just sit there and stared at it the whole meeting I was going I don't ever get to see stuff like that. Where did you, you know, she's my wacky, she's one of the wacky prayer ladies, you know. And Mary Lou said, Mary said, well, I was glad it wasn't the devil. I'm glad it was an angel. <laughs> so uh, so Debbie calls me. She says, Benny, you got to read the gospel of Luke. I said, okay, I will. I said, why am I supposed to read the gospel? She said, I don't know. Every time I pray for you, the Lord says, tell Benny to read the gospel of Luke. So I said, I'm going to do it. Now, since that, I've probably read the Gospel of Luke six or seven hundred times. Uh, but I got to Luke four forty three, and it said, uh, "And Jesus gathered the twelve disciples, and he said, I must go city to city and preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for that's the reason I came into the world. The good news of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. All right, how many times is born again mentioned in the New Testament?" twice uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus in John 3 and and, and now <clears throat> when you read the Bible you've got sometimes you get a an answer without a question so you have to make up the question I mean it's common sense if I'm talking to somebody on the phone and I said yes uh, her dress was red you know so they were they were saying what was the question what color was her dress <laughs> you know you go I hear the answer so obviously there was a question that matched the answer so when Jesus, when, when Jesus uh, was talking to J Nicodemus, he said, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will never see the kingdom of God. Unless a man is born again, he'll never enter the kingdom of God. What was the question? How do I get into the kingdom? <laughs> you know, so when you see, the you see the answer, you say, well, I know what he asked. So it doesn't say uh, what the question, it just gives the answer. So Nicodemus was going, why was Nicodemus asking how to get into the kingdom? Because that's all Jesus preached. His whole message was the kingdom of God. How do you begin every parable? Well, the kingdom of God is like this. And so uh, 
Uh, so born again is mentioned one other time in First Peter. He said, we've been born of corruptible seed. We must be born again of incorruptible seed. So that's only two times. How many times is the gospel of the kingdom mentioned in the New Testament? 72 times. 72. And, and in the Old Testament, we, we're still counting. So Jesus came not to build the kingdom of God. It's already been built. The kingdom of God is from everlasting to everlasting. Jesus came to tell us about the kingdom of God. He did not come to build it. He came to reveal it. And I hear people all the time, we need to build the kingdom of God. We're here to build the kingdom of God. And I say, no, guys, it's already built. It's already there. <clears throat> but we, we, so I went on this journey of what is the gospel of the kingdom, which is the gospel. Now, I don't have time tonight to do that one, but we talked a little bit about it. So we need to talk about it because if we don't understand what the gospel is, well, isn't the gospel Jesus dying on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven? Absolutely. Um, that, that's part of the gospel. Um, we're, we're to teach the whole counsel of God. And so we'll talk about what that is and uh, why is it important for somebody to be born again? Because that's how you get into the kingdom. <laughs> so if you're not born again, you can't get into the kingdom. So is that a great message? Absolutely. Should We want everybody to have that experience to have this spiritual start in their life where, they, where they're adopted into the family of God. So, but what is, it, what is the gospel? And we're going to talk about that because it, it, uh, it happens. The, the kingdom of God is not the church. And we act like it is. The kingdom of God is not the church. The Catholic church has built their whole system on that the Catholic church is the kingdom of God. You actually, the day you're born, what are you born into? The kingdom. You're born into it the day you're, of your birth. That's why they baptize infants. And so they view, the, they view the church as the kingdom. The church are the citizens of the kingdom. We're the people of the kingdom. That's what the church is. And so what we have is we got a lot of people telling us how to, to be good church members. And the New Testament teaches us how to be good citizens of a kingdom. And they're two different things. They're two totally different things. And so, uh, but that's what we hear. Well, if you want to be a good church member, here's what you do. And it, it usually has something to do with religious schedules and rituals and things that, and meeting certain obligations. And uh, many of those are the ways of men, not the ways of God. How many of you have ever heard of George Barna? Have you, when's the last time you read a book by George Barna? been a while hadn't it you know why don't you because George Barner started out to correct the church and so he said guys we're not doing it good enough let's do it better then he next book he said no that doesn't work we need to let's let's do it different let's don't do it better let's start doing it different and then in his last book he said you know what I think we have to scrap the whole thing and start over you hadn't read any books by him lately have you <laughs> that wasn't a very popular message was it yeah, because when Jesus came and challenged the religious system of the day, that's where all the power and control and money was, what did they try to do to him? Kill him. See, it's not, it's not popular to, to attack a religious system. And sometimes I think we trap Jesus inside a religious system. And uh, 
some and, it, and sometimes it's like Isaiah in chapter, uh, I think it's chapter, I can't remember, 40 or 41, where where Isaiah was telling the children of Israel, said, now every every Sabbath you go and every Sabbath you do the uh, the rituals and the sacrifices and said, y'all are really faithful. And he said, the Spirit of God left here 40 years ago and y'all haven't even missed him. You didn't even know he was gone. I've been in some of those churches. And so we we need to understand what the gospel is. What did Jesus come to teach us, tell us, show us, and do for us? And Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God and how it works and how we can be a part of that kingdom. And, uh, and a lot of the things that the church does has nothing to do with that. And so there's, a, uh, I think we've missed it. So, we're, but we're not we're not going to talk about that. But we will talk about that. And I I want to I, I want to encourage you to go back and start reading the scripture, and you'll 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 be surprised every time you see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, Luke eight one, and Jesus went city to city proclaiming the kingdom of God, and uh, Acts one three, Acts chapter one verse three, Jesus had forty days left. He was resurrected, and he had forty days to spend with his disciples. And Acts one, uh, chapter one, verse three, what did he teach them over those forty days? The kingdom of God. And Paul, at the end of Acts, Acts chapter twenty-eight, verses thirty and thirty-one, the end of Act, the end of Paul's life, and he lived in a rented house in Rome, and people came unhindered, and he was teaching them the kingdom of God. And you know what Matthew twenty-four fourteen says? And when this gospel of the kingdom is preached to every nation, then the end will come. How many of y'all have heard uh, someone teach? or preach on Sunday morning the gospel of the kingdom. Have you ever heard a message on the gospel of the kingdom? I don't think I had. I've called one of the well-known national leaders and had this conversation with him. And after the end of it, I said, have you ever preached a message? I said, how long have you preached? He said, 35 years. I said, have you ever preached a message called the gospel of the kingdom? He said, no, but I'm getting ready to. (laughs) I said, because that's all Jesus preached. So... To understand the role of the church, what the church is, and the role of the church in the world, you need to understand what the gospel of the kingdom was. Once you understand that, so we love to tell people how to get in the kingdom. You must be born again. You must be forgiven. That's the only way you can enter the kingdom, through Christ. He is the door. But that's the first thing. And most people are stuck right there. And so when, the people, when people look at the church, the church doesn't look a whole lot different than the world. You know, that's, uh, you, you look at all the stats, you look at the divorce stats, you look at the child abuse stats, you look at everything else. And when we look at the world and we look at the church, then the stats are almost the same. And we're saying, well, that doesn't work. So what we're doing, obviously, is not working. So... <clears throat> So what, what is the church? We know the church is the people of God. The church are the citizens of the kingdom. The, the Bible starts telling us all the, the different... Uh, and when you hear the word church, uh, what is that word? So we got some biblical scholars here. Ecclesia, all right. What's that word mean? The gathering. So, so we think, uh, we hear the word gathering, and we say that is... Uh, the ecclesia that's when we gather and I would say that's not the definition of ecclesia 
it's it's not the gathering, it's the gatherers. It's the called out ones. It's the assembly. It is those who've been called out of the world into the kingdom of God. And and when is the church the church? All the time. We are the ones who've been called out of this world to live as citizens of God's kingdom and to someday inherit that kingdom. And uh, But yet we, we find ourselves caught up in a system of religion. Let's, uh, let me see here. Yeah, here we go. Let me give you the history of uh, evangelism for the last 2,000 years. You ready? Okay. Here is Europe. And here is Africa. It'll start making sense here in a minute. And then here, over here is the United States, but it's a part of North American continent. And then we have um, South America down here. And over here we got Australia. And over here is China and some of India, but over here is India and the rest of China. And then you have um, South America, North America, you got uh, Asia, we'll, we'll do China here, India here, Europe here, and Africa here. And it all started right there. The church started in, in Jerusalem. How many of you know why fire fell on the heads of the, the, when the Spirit came, why did fire fall on the heads of the people there? Why is that? Fire fell on them because in the Old Testament when they consecrated Solomon's temple, what happened? Fire fell from heaven on the house of God. And in the New Testament, when the true house of God was first identified to consecrate the house of God, what happened? Fire fell from heaven and landed on them. It's a, you got to understand even that part of it. It was a reenactment of the Old Testament when they consecrated the temple. New Testament, we're now the temple. So, uh, <clears throat> so here it starts right here, and it started out as a body of believers. And at that point, uh, at, at that time, that was the center of the world. That was the center of the economic world. Everything happened there very quickly. In 300 years, it moved to Rome. And so, the economic center moved to Rome. The church moved to Rome, and so. In, in Jerusalem, it started as a body. By the time the church got to Rome, uh, it was turned into an organization. So it's no longer a body, it's an organization. And uh, how many of you know why Constantine adopted Christianity and, and became the head of the church? Because he was a politician, and they kept persecuting the church, and the church kept growing. And he said, you know what? If we don't join them, they're going to overthrow us. See, that happened once before. You ever heard of a guy called Pharaoh? He said, they're growing so fast, they're going to overthrow us. And so they were growing so fast. And he said, okay. So Constantine and his mom got this plan together to institute, let's make the church into an organization we can, cut, we can control. We, if we can put it into an organization, we can control it. So it became the church was not a body, but then it became an organization. A few thousand years later, moved to Europe, and so the center of Christianity was Europe. By the way, that was the center of the finances of the world, and so the church is moving. And in Europe, 
it was no longer an organization, it became an institution. All right. Then the economic center of the world came here. The church moves here. We start America. Christ, uh, you study the history of America. Here are Christians uh, that want to start a country. And so now we have the gospel moving this way. And in America, the church becomes an enterprise. started out as a people, a body of believers that were to take the, the, the message of the kingdom to the world. Uh, Luke 4, 43, and Jesus gathered the 12 together and he said, I must go city to city and proclaim the kingdom of God. In Luke 8, 1, and Jesus went city to city proclaiming the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him. Luke 9, 1, and Jesus sends the 12 out city to city proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. In Luke 10, 1, and Jesus gathered seven and sent them about two by two to city to city proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And Matthew says, and when this gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed in every nation, then the end will come. So we had this command to go and to make disciples. It started out as a body. Constantine turned it into an organization. King Henry VIII turned it into an institution so that they could control it. So the move in America, have you ever heard of separation of church and state? Where do you think that came from? Because here, who controlled the church? The state. The, the Pope answered to the king. And so, in fact, uh, King Henry VIII declared himself the Pope. So he was the king and the Pope. And so then the church goes here, and uh, I remember Paul going to the Colosseum, I think, for thirty nine ninety five you could get his book and a tape, and and you could hear, isn't that what he did? For thirty nine ninety five you could get a ticket into the Colosseum and hear Paul preach and, and get his tape. Think. What have we done? What have we done with the gospel? And so, you know why uh, it's hard to change anything now with what the church has become? It's because it's a financial enterprise. And you start messing with people's pockets. And when you start messing with their pocketbooks, you start messing with their power. And when you say, no, there's some things we need to correct. And Jesus came in, and the first thing he had to do before he could redeem the world through his death on the cross and take the message of the gospel to every nation, he had to go back to the nation of Israel and correct them. That's why he said, I'm here for the house of Israel first, because we're so far off base, we've got to correct this thing. And what did they do? If we don't kill him, the whole world's going to follow him. And they're going to leave. We, we will have no more authority. We'll have we're going to lose everything. And so they said, let's kill this guy. That's what religion does. The greatest enemy to the gospel is religion. So, uh, so as you see, the gospel really traveled west. Now, when you, when you read about the first church, they went everywhere. And everywhere the gospel goes, you know, you can go, the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic church went around the world. And then you go to England. England, not, they didn't go around the world. They took over the world. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you think of that little thing called Great Britain, and you can go to almost any country in the world, and they were once under the sovereignty of the queen or the king of England, that little continent. And then now we look at the, the historically the greatest nation on earth, now America, and you see where we're headed. Well, let me show you what happens. The Bible says that uh, the... The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. All right. 
the thief, and who's he talking about there? The devil. Okay. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. You can't kill something that hadn't been born. You can't steal something that hadn't been bought. You can't destroy something that hasn't been built. So what does Satan come to do? Nothing. What does he come to Satan comes to undo. So if you'll trace the advancement of the gospel around the world, and now where are the two next great economic powers rising in, in world history, in, in, in the history of the world? China and India, the two fastest growing economies in the world. Where's the gospel exploding? China and India. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? So here it goes. And now, all the way around the world, and now we have from China back to Jerusalem, there's a box here. What's that box called? The 1040 window. So guess who's in that box? Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. So now the gospel, you can see the gospel literally advance around the world. And But what happens when the gospel advances, it doesn't necessarily stick. Because every time the gospel advances, something comes right along behind it to undo it. What is that called? What comes along behind the gospel to undo it? It's called Islam. If you, if you, if you, here's Islam, and if you follow the advancement of the gospel, the temple mount where Solomon, Solomon built the temple, what is it now? It's Islamic mosque. You go to Europe, you go uh, to Rome, and you head right over here, and here goes the advancement of the gospel, and right behind it comes Islam. What are we seeing in America? Here it comes. And so the gospel keeps advancing. So evangelism advances the gospel. What makes the gospel stay? Once it advances, you take it somewhere, what makes it stick? Discipleship. Advance, you advance it with, so what's, what's the church done a great job of? Evangelism. We've taken the gospel around the world. What have we done a terrible job at? Discipleship. Because as soon as it goes on, it diminishes and dies. How many generations does it take? One. Judges chapter 2. It's amazing. Can, uh, you know, um, Joshua and Caleb take the children of Israel into the promised land, fulfilling a 400-year-old promise. They get there for one generation. And in Judges chapter 2, what does it say? Joshua and Caleb died. Then came the next generation that neither knew not God nor had seen the great things he had done. After our 400-year-old promise, and it took one generation for it to dissolve. That's why parents are concerned about their children. Because just because we have discovered who the Lord is and he's changed our lives, we just sort of think, well, what happened to our children? And there's a lot of voices out there after our children. We all know that. So here's this advancement of the gospel, and you have the enemy coming along right behind to destroy everything that's built. So the port, you know, evangelism and discipleship. So now we have the, uh, and, you know, everywhere it went, there, you know, there's all over Africa. Do you know Africa's been evangelized? Most mission agencies are now leaving Africa. They're, they've basically turned the work of the, the church, uh, the work of the church in Africa over to the church in Africa. So I, I don't know if you study or keep up with the mission organizations, but they've all bailed out of Africa. They said, we've been there, it's been evangelized, now African believers need to carry it on. So where's all the, where's all the money and effort going now? The 1040 window. You say, what's that got to do with us? You know, we're here talking about the church. You, we need to understand what the church is. The church is the people of God 
that is, is called to go into all the world and make disciples right here. And the, the church has a product. Church only has one product, something it produces. And what is it? Christ-like people. That's what the church produces, Christ-like people. Uh, what is a disciple? Luke 6.40. Disciple is not greater than his teacher, but when a disciple is fully trained, he's exactly like his teacher. That's what it says. So go into the world and make people that are like Jesus. That one little thing that's not, some, that's, that's not strange to any of us changed my whole ministry. Because I looked at all my activities, I looked at all the things I was doing, and all the programs and all these wonderful things, and, and I was looking, and I was doing it better than everybody else around because I'm a competitive athlete. And so I'm going to, if I do it, I'm going to compete against the other people and do it better than they do because that's how you succeed, by doing it better than the other guy. And that's what we grow up with. And so I came to this realization that, that on paper, my youth ministry was the best youth ministry in town, but it wasn't producing disciples. It was, it was a lot of religious activity, and you know why I was producing? Fake disciples, counterfeits, because they were hearers of the word, not doers of the word. They came and they listened, and you know how else we can produce fake disciples? And this will be very important on how you form the church, is we can create programs that do Christ-like things. Let's go feed hungry people. Let's organize ourselves and go feed hungry people. Christ fed hungry people. So obviously if we go feed hungry people, we're obviously Christ-like. So just because you do a religious activity, a Christ-like activity, does that make you Christ-like? If you give your body to be burned, if you give, uh, sell everything and give it to the poor, it profits you nothing if, there's not, if, it's, if, if the attitude of your heart has not been transformed. And I realized I had kids that were living ungodly lives that would go with me on an event and they would do this Christ-like thing that we programmed, and they go, I must be a Christ-like because I fed hungry people. And you know what? Their hearts and minds weren't changed at all. I just They, they were just programmed to do Christ-like activities. And you know what? You know what? And the scariest verse in the Bible, what is it, Matthew 7? And many will say, Lord, Lord, we did this, and we did this, and we did this. We did a lot of religious activities. And he'll say, uh, I don't even know who you are. And you know what? I produced some of those people with my programs. And I said, Lord, I can't do that anymore. you got to teach me what are we doing. And the, the church has one purpose, and that's to make disciples. And so I came to the conclusion if Jesus came back, and, and if he came back today to this fellowship or to any group, and he, I think he would ask me, I think he would ask one question. He wouldn't say, how many, how many people, how many seats are in your building? How many programs have you got here? How, tell, tell me about what's your budget like. How much? He, he'd ask one question. What would he ask? I would like to meet the disciples you've made. Would you show show me your disciples? Would you show me the people that you created that are like me? And we create those people. Do you know that Jesus? It's, it's sort of funny that Jesus, the Son of God was the king of kings and lord of lords, but he wasn't born in a palace. Now you'd think if he was a king, he should have been born in a palace, right? 
Uh, he's the Lord of Lords. He's the high priest over Israel, the one and only mediator between God and man. Well, he should have been born in the temple, right? No. I, I found out that, that God did not want his son raised by a politician or a preacher. He chose a carpenter. He chose for his son to be born into a carpenter's house. And I know why. It took me a long time to figure that out. You know why? Because carpenters know how to make things. Carpenters know how to make a tree, how to take a tree and make a table out of it. They know how to take one thing and make something totally different out of it. And you read Jesus' language, it was the language of a carpenter. What was it? Go and make disciples. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And so what we do is we've got to be careful that we don't uh, see the church as an assembly when we assemble. It is the assembly. It's not an assembly. It is the called out ones. It's a people. Uh, when we get into the gospel of the kingdom, I'm going to tell you what Jesus came to do and explain it to you out of the scripture. Jesus came to start a race of people that would inherit his kingdom. A brand new race of people. Um, I get, I'll give you just a little clue because this is, this is good. Uh, it was, I mean, not from me when when I got it. When, uh I never could understand why why the Samaritan was the hero in all of Jesus' stories. And so you know, the, the good Samaritan, he was the guy. It wasn't the politician or the preacher. They went on the other side of the road and went on about their way. It was this Samaritan. What's a Samaritan? What are they? They're half-breed. They were the, they were the product when a Jew married a Gentile. So the Jews hated them because they weren't Jewish. The Gentiles hated them because they weren't Gentile. So they were this half-breed. It was uh, basically, you know what a Samaritan was? A Jew and a Gentile living in the same body. The two had become one. You know what Peter said? Out of the two, I will make one new man, one new mankind. Out of the Jews and the Gentiles, in one body, I will create a new race of people. And he always used the Samaritan as the hero of his story because the Samaritan was a picture of this race of people that he would create when the Jews had to leave religion had to leave rebellion and they had to come together in one body, the body of Christ this new mankind this new creation so we are, we don't belong here anymore we're a new race of people and our home is not here anymore, we started out as friends with the world but now we're what aliens and strangers now we don't belong here anymore but when we're here you know what we're here to do to represent for the kingdom Who's a person? What's the name? What's a person called if they they're a citizen of one kingdom, but but they live in another kingdom to represent that kingdom? Ambassadors. What did Peter say we are? You're now Christ's ambassadors. You don't belong here anymore. You're actually citizens of another kingdom, and you're simply here to represent that kingdom. And the problem is, we try to represent two kingdoms. I say I want to I want to represent the kingdom of God with this foot, and I'm going to represent the world with this foot. And what did Jesus say about that? He said, you need to get in one kingdom or the other. In other words, if you're going to serve the kingdom of men, the fallen kingdom of men, just get both feet in it. But don't put one foot in each kingdom because I'll skew you up and down. So what, who we are, what we're called to, how we're to live, what our purpose is, is that our, uh, you know what a bride does? <clears throat> a bride makes babies. Uh, and the, and the, and in the, in the creation, it said, 
and uh, in the very beginning it said, and everything God created would reproduce after its own kind. So flowers make flowers, and trees make trees, and people make people, and the body of Christ makes what? The body of Christ. Christ-like people produce Christ-like people. That's why it says go make disciples, produce those people. And I was producing a lot of things that looked very religious, and then I had to come to that reality that uh, I wasn't do I wasn't producing what He had called me to produce to make disciples. First of all, I wasn't sure what one was, and the other thing was I'm not sure how to make them. Because you know what I thought made disciples religious activity. And what you do if you have enough activity, then disciples sort of bubble up out of you. Uh, the coach, Coach Wooden at UCLA, is already a great Christian man, but. He said, never mistake activity for productivity. And I did. And we had the most active group out there. But what was the end game? And I, I saw a lot of people doing very, uh, being very active in religious activity, but they were still citizens of this world. They had not been transformed from the inside out. You know what information makes? You know what the right information makes? Great Pharisees. They knew the scripture and they could answer every question. And we're not looking for having the right information. What are we looking for? Transformation. Where you become a a whole new creature. So when when we talk about as the church, who are we? Who are we as the church? Who are we in the world? Who are we in the kingdom? And how do we function? We have to rethink all that. And so that's been my journey. Is how, how, God, what, who are we? And what, what did you call us to do? And uh, I think we do a lot of things that God did not call us to do. We do a lot of things that look good to men in the name of God. And let me tell you this, Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light and his messengers as messengers of righteousness. There's two kinds of wisdom, James chapter 2. There's wisdom that comes from above, that comes from God, and there's wisdom that comes from below. And where does it come from? The demons. And James said, be careful that your theology is not demonic. It's a very interesting comment. Uh, you know, if I preach it on Sunday morning, the love offering would not be very big. <laughs> you know, make sure, check, test your theology and make sure it's not from demons. Uh, don't, don't, don't try to take up a love offering after that. <laughs> you better run for the door. I'm just telling you. That doesn't, that, that doesn't sell very well. But the scripture teaches that. So we have to test everything. So the first thing I would ask you to test is me. In Romans, when someone speaks to you and teaches you from the Word of God, are you supposed to listen to everything they say or test everything? Test everything because the prophets are subject to prophets. Now, my last name is Prophet. That has nothing to do with that. I'm the minor prophet and major, major prophet. And so we've, we've been down that road. We know all those jokes. <laughs> but uh, the thing is, we're a nation of prophets. I sat with a thousand men 
in Wichita, Kansas on a men's weekend at, at Central Christian Church in Wichita. Had over a thousand men there. And uh, I asked him, I said, uh, in the Bible, it says that the role of discipleship in a home, the role of discipleship for a child is given to who in the scripture? Who has the role of discipling children? A father in a home. It says fathers, fathers. Go back and read it. How many, how many instructions are there in Scripture for the church to disciple children? Zero, none. There's no biblical instruction for the church to disciple children. And yet, I built a program where all and my, my success was how many parents could I get to bring their kids to me for me to disciple them. And boy, I felt good about it because it made me look good. And that was not biblical whatsoever. Now, we were filling in the gap for a lot of parents that didn't, so I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But we finally said, no, you know what we're going to do? We're going to focus on our time on teaching parents how to disciple their children because that's the role of a parent. So I asked these men, I went through this with these thousand men in church, believers, and I said, how many of y'all were discipled by your dad? Your father taught you the things of God was the example of the things of God and taught. Now, these are men in church, not the men walking the street. How many men out of that thousand raise their hand? Three. Three men out of a thousand. See, remember, the church is not the kingdom of God. The church are the citizens. They're the people of the kingdom. You want a picture of the kingdom? What's a picture of the kingdom? Did God reveal himself as a pastor? Are we his congregation or his children? What's the picture of God's kingdom? Family. It's your home. Your home is a picture of God's kingdom. What's the number one attack of the enemy, Satan? To destroy what? The picture of God's kingdom in this world, the home. A visible picture. What's marriage? It's a visible picture of Christ in his church. And so when we... We realize that's why the family is under attack. And number one target of the enemy, who is it? The pastor of a church? No. The father of a home. You take him out, God's whole system of how his kingdom works falls apart. Now, there's some great single moms that are raising godly kids because God doesn't drop out when, when, when we fail. He said, I'll be, the, I'll be the husband to the widow. I'll be the father to the fatherless. God never walks away from us. He's always there for us. But there is, God has in his creation, and when we get into the gospel of the kingdom, we're going to talk about created things declaring invisible things. The whole creation, everything God created, was simply a visible picture of his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. Everything. How many people have an excuse not to know, to, to not know God? None. Romans 1.20. Because from the creation... The invisible attributes of God, his eternal power, everything about God was made known through the things he created, so they are without excuse. And so, you know, how, if you want to learn about the kingdom of God, guess what you study? The creation. The day you're born, three things happen. You become a new person, you become a member of a family, and you become a citizen of a nation. Isn't that interesting? So the day I was born, I became Benny, but I also became... I kept, became Benny, a new person. I became Benny Prophet, a family member, and I became Benny Prophet in America on the day I was born. Guess what happens when you're born again? You become a brand new person. You're a member of a new family, and you're a citizen of a 
it all happens at the same time. The kingdom, the, the creation is a parallel of the kingdom. Everything in it. No man has an excuse. So if the family is a picture of the kingdom, then how should this group function? As a family. All right. So I used to think my mom, love her to death. She's 91. Mary Lou's mom, we're going to see her. She just turned 100. And my mom taught the same Sunday school class for 60 years. And I'm thinking, that's amazing until I studied the kingdom. She taught the same people the Bible for 60 years. Now, what if your, what if your kid was 60 years old <laughs> in your house and you said, I, my mama still feeds me? My mama still dresses me, and my mama teaches me every day. What are you going to say? When are you going to grow up and get out of here and go do this again? Because what 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 the families reproduce? Families, right? And you know what this family is supposed to reproduce? Families. So out of this group, in a, in a short period of time, now we expect our kids between the ages of 18 and 25 to have their own families. They raised up in my home, and after a period of time, I'm going, you need to get out of here. <laughs> you know, it's time to grow up. We've already taught you to feed yourself. That's why I told those thousand men. I said, I cannot believe you guys are sitting here on Sunday morning, I mean on Saturday morning, taking your Saturday off to hear me talk. I tell you, you know what I see? I, I looked at him and I said, y'all may not like this, but all I see is about a thousand men sitting in a high chair with diapers on saying, feeding, feeding, feeding. I said, when you're a man, feed yourself. You don't go somewhere to be fed. You feed yourself and you feed others. And how many people are sitting in the same building, listening to the same, go, I can't wait to get to church to be fed. I've heard that till I'm sick. So when are you going to learn to feed yourself? I taught my, but in two years, I taught my children how to feed themselves. It only took two years. And you've been going to the same church 40 years saying, feed me, feed me. And that's what we create. That's what we've created. You know how many, you know how many ministries that this fellowship ought to have? How many people? discipled, you know what you're going to do when you're properly discipled? You're going to do what God tells you to do. You're going to say what God tells you to say. And what else are you going to do? Nothing. Because that's what Jesus did, and people like Jesus do what Jesus did. How many of us, how many how many churches have created those people? I've not met too many of them. I've met most of the ones I've met said, I can't get the word, I can't wait to get to church every Sunday so somebody can feed me. And I'm going, what have we done? And now we wonder why we're farther behind we haven't changed the world so a fellowship of believers the job of this fellowship of believers should be launch multiple ministries that each one of y'all that God's called you to do and then at some point all of y'all all be gone and starting your own fellowship of believers and maybe in your communities or other places that's how this thing grows Who, who's to be a who's to be a messenger of the kingdom in the old testament in the old testament the system, and, I, and I'm about ready. I'll do this one, then we'll... Okay, sorry. Can y'all hear me okay? <laughs> yeah, you're not using it anyway. It's, more, it's, a, it's a hindrance to you.